Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, public historian, broadcaster and author Greg Jenner talks about his book Dead Famous, an unexpected history of celebrity. The episode is moderated by author and journalist Anna Carey and was recorded via Zoom on the 1st of October 2021. Hello. I'm Anna Carey and I'm delighted to be here talking to Greg about his fantastic new book, Dead Famous, uh, an unexpected history of celebrity from Bronze Age to the silver screen. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the Festival of History, Greg. Hello. Thank you. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. Um, so the book is, as I've just, uh, as the subtitle pretty much makes clear, <laughs> An unexpected history of celebrity, but it actually, the tone of it was set in a kind of unexpected way because you write in the introduction that you were originally planning to write a slightly kind of snarkier book. Um, <laughs> and then something happened in January 1916. Uh, January 2016, 1916. <laughs> I'm in a historical mode. As you Don't you worry. Um, no, it, it wasn't the Easter Rising. It was um, it was the, the death uh, of, um, of David Bowie, who was not someone I was an enormous fan of, particularly. I mean, obviously, I knew a lot of his work, as people kind of do when you grow up. But um, but he died very, very suddenly. And it was this enormous shock. And I was slightly taken aback by how people on Twitter were so moved and upset by his death. Because, you know, obviously, this was a, a hugely important figure in the 20th century and 21st century. And um, as you say, the book was sort of, it was going to be a bit more cheeky and a bit more snarky and a bit more fun and lively. And I was going to be a bit like, oh, celebrity, what's the point? And then his death very quickly made me re-examine the, the fact that actually celebrity culture means a lot more to us than we perhaps realise. And he died on the very morning I started the book. Um, pure coincidence, but literally the very day that I came downstairs with my laptop to sort of you know start on page one, day one, um, I switched on my laptop and, and the news was there. So his death enormously shaped what the book became, um, but not, it wasn't really what the book was meant to be initially. It was meant to be a lot more fun. Um, and there are many celebrities, I'm sure, for whom that sort of loss really hurts people. And you know, for me, it's Robin Williams, I think. It's the celebrity that I kind of miss. Every now and then I just remember he's no longer with us and it makes me sad. And I think for a lot of people, it was Prince, um, yeah. which, of course, again, another titan of the music world. Um, and I'm sure, you know, in a few years' time, we'll, we'll lose more enormously significant um, figures. Uh, I know Ireland has lost some some huge cultural figures quite recently in broadcasting. So these things do matter and they do have an impact on us. And so um, as a historian, I wanted to write a book that was funny, but also was fair and respectful and also got to the sort of the heart of why we care so much about celebrity and why it means so much to us and how that has come to be. Where did it start and, and why? So, yeah, David Bowie has had a, a large impact. And you sort of def you have a very specific definition of celebrity as opposed to sort of previous ideas of renown and fame. So uh, you you make it pretty clear in the book how how do you describe for people out there who haven't read the book yet how do how do you describe a celebrity or define a celebrity I should say? It's a very strange thing. I, when I sat down to 
pitched this book to my editor, I assumed that celebrity is a thing we can all agree on. We all know what it is. Like celebrity is a famous person on the telly, sure. Um, there is no accepted definition of celebrity. Bizarrely, sociologists have been writing about it for decades, but no one agrees. So I had to come up with my own definition because I was looking for the start. I was looking for the origins of celebrity. And if you can't define it, how do you know when it starts? How do you track it? So I had to come up with my own working definition, which has five points. And um, first point is that the celebrity needs to have an, a unique personality. So they need to be distinctive. The second point is they need to be known to strangers, which is a thing called parasocial intimacy, where you have a one-way relationship where the public know who the celebrity is, but the celebrity doesn't know who the public are. Um, the third point is there needs to be the involvement of the mass media. That's how the fame is spread. The fourth point is pretty crucial, and that is that celebrity is uh, a fascination with the private life. So it's where people care about who the celebrity is, not necessarily what they do. So it's about you know their sex life, their private life, their their holidays, what they choose to wear, who they vote for, all those things. And and the fifth point, and probably the most crucial point of all, I think, is celebrity is about money, it's about capitalism and cash. Um, I like to sort of say it's celebrity is basically voyeurism plus capitalism. It, it's a, an industry where. The celebrity doesn't just earn money for themselves. And that's a crucial thing that I sort of should stress probably. Celebs obviously can earn huge amounts of money. They can earn millions. Um, but that's not what defines celebrity. What defines celebrity, I think, is when other people can make money from their fame with or without their permission. And there's a sort of parasitic ecosystem of journalists and bloggers and T-shirt designers and paparazzi photographers who can use someone else's fame to make their own career. And that is celebrity. When you've got those five points all working, that's celebrity. And if you haven't got one of those five working for you, then you're not a celeb. And that's, it's quite a controversial point, but I, you know, I had to come up with a definition that worked and every other definition I tried didn't really get to grips with it. So that was the only way I could make sense of it. And that's one of the things that's really interesting in the book is when you talk about how some people who are you know, they're, they're, they're activists, say, you know, they're not necessarily selling themselves, but somebody like Frederick Douglass becomes the most photographed American of the 19th century. Yeah. Um, you know, he's doing important work, but he also becomes a celebrity, you know, his image is sort of has its own kind of, it signifies something and it becomes its own kind of thing. So, um, I mean, how, what, what was about that sort of aspect of how somebody almost is, uh, becomes an image that appeals to you as, uh, as a historian? Well, that's, that's a great question because I think you don't necessarily, by definition, need to have an image to be a celebrity. I think you probably can have celebrities who'd exist as ideas that are spoken of, mm-hmm. but of course, we all know that celebrity culture is a hugely visual thing. Um, and we have our Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and YouTube and movies and internet and telly and all that. Um, and Frederick Douglass is a really interesting case study, but he's not the first at all. He was the most photographed American of the 19th century, which surprises people because this was, you know, he was, he was a, an African-American. He had been born into slavery. You'd expect it would be someone like, you know, Lincoln or, or a, you know, P.T. Barnum or someone like that, a big celebrity who was a bit more entertainment-y or, or political. But he was a very clever art theorist and very, very sophisticated, understood the power of photography to communicate the dignity of people of colour. And he used it 
as part of his marketing strategy. But we, we find it in the 18th century already. We find it much earlier at the very birth of celebrity in the 1700s. We see actresses and actors, uh, performers, politicians, um, soldiers, sailors. We see all sorts of people using their image as a way of selling themselves and putting themselves in the public's sort of view in the, you know, in, in front of the public and saying, here I am, I'm important. You should know who I am. And so there are notable artists who became very, very good at working with celebrities and themselves became celebrities because they worked with celebrities. Yeah. And the most obvious one is probably Joshua Reynolds who um, helped found the, the Royal Academy of Art in, in England. And uh, he was a, a brilliant painter, a fantastic technician, but what was interesting about him is that he loved working with people who were lowborn, and he painted plenty of duchesses and and dukes and important royals and dignitaries. But he also painted pretty sort of you know cheeky provocateurs, women who used their sexuality to become famous, who were born into working class lives and became the lovers of wealthy men, people like Kitty Fisher. Mm. So he was someone who was sort of the kind of the Warhol of his day, I suppose, um, or the Annie Leibowitz. You know, he worked, he was brilliant at what he did, but he enjoyed working with people who were not necessarily the types of people who would ordinarily get a, normally get a painting. You know, that's that's usually for the rich. And he sort of created, you know, with somebody like Sarah Siddons, you know, mm-hmm. he sort of helps create her public image as this, at the time when actresses' role, you know, position in society was, uh, shall we say, ambiguous he <laughs> her as being this sort of grand artiste um but it's actually because i i studied art history at university and i spent a year oh, right. doing 18th century painting and that is how i think that's the only reason i know of those 18th century <laughs> celebrities that they have survived in those images so i'm like yeah. oh yes there was in david garrick i remember writing an essay on this <laughs> but that's right the images sort of have survived. So, I, you know, is, is, is that a way of sort of preserving celebrity? Because one of the things that the book points out is that it can be a very fleeting mm-hmm. thing. You know, most, most of the celebrities in the book, yeah, probably most of them are not well known now. That's true. Yeah. I mean, obviously I chose some sort of very famous people because, you know, sometimes it's nice to have the fun, you know, the, the Lord Byron's of this world and, you know, the kind of, the really tempestuous provocateurs and so on. But yeah, a lot of the people in the book are not going to be well known to, to those watching today. And you're absolutely right. Celebrity, I think by definition, most people assume it's fleeting as if it's, you know, as if celebrity itself has to be fleeting. And that's not the case. Celebrity is an economic system and it can be long lasting. It can also be posthumous. You can be absolutely forgotten in your own life and rendered a celebrity after death. Um, and that happened to several famous people, Mozart, um, uh, the Brontes, really. Um, certainly some of the sort of most interesting writers of the 19th century were, you know, not necessarily hugely successful in their lifetime, but after their death, they became a commodity, you know, the romantic poets, for example. Yeah. So celebrity can be fleeting for sure. And the, you know, there's a study done of pop careers, modern pop careers that found that the average pop star has a four year career which is pretty brutal. Um, but at the same time, you also had celebrities who had very long-lasting careers and managed to keep famous for a long, long time. So it's one of those curious things, but you're right that art was a way of, of reinforcing the brand, of um, 
of moving it along sometimes, you know, as Madonna does in, you yeah. know, through the eighties, nineties and noughties, she constantly kept refreshing her brand and working with new producers and, and updating her look. Well, there were plenty of celebrities who did that too. And then there were some celebrities who decided, no, I've got a look and I'm going to make that my look for my entire career for decades <laughs> on end. And I'm going to stick to it. Even as I get older, even as I gain weight, even as I lose my hair, I'm going to, this is my thing. This is my iconic brand. So you have people like, um, well, I suppose, I mean, the most famous one perhaps in terms of American history is um, uh, Samuel, uh, his normal name, uh, but we call him Mark Twain. Uh, I won't give his normal name, but Mark Twain is known to Americans as a man in a white suit. That's his his iconic look. That, funny enough, is something he did very late in life. But if you ask an American to draw Mark Twain, they draw him in a white suit. And the other one would be Buffalo Bill who in his, you know, as a young man wore the kind of the fur, the tassels, the hair, had his hair long, he had the moustache, um, carried the rifle. And he continued that look for his entire life, even when his hair fell out and he started to wear a wig, even when the sort of the, you know, the tassels started to get a bit good and tired. He, you know, he kept this look going because he understood it was his, um, his brand and that he couldn't allow himself to age beyond it. And there were some authors, for example, Marie Corelli, mm. who's a very famous novelist of the 19th century or late 19th, early 20th century, who is completely forgotten now. She's totally fallen out of fashion. Um, but she um, refused to pose for photographs because she wanted people to think she was young and beautiful and very slender. And she was ultimately, you know, a, a middle-aged woman who had gained some weight and, and whose hair was graying a bit. And Mark Twain actually was incredibly rude about her. He, he said an incredibly mean thing about her, saying she was disgusting um, because she pretended to be a teenage girl, but she was a middle-aged woman. And she refused to pose for photographs through her entire career. And eventually she posed for one, but she photoshopped herself. You know, in the 1890s, she shrunk her waist way down and she made her face younger. So even in the 19th century, people, celebrities were using filters on their images to make sure people thought of them as younger and more beautiful than they were. And you point out in the book that, you know, the sort of the presentation of that image was very much commodified quite early in things like prints and cards and yeah. collectibles and uh, and pipes. I mean, you've got a great story about <laughs> W.G. Grace. Yeah. With a pipe a- in his image. That's a cute. That's quite a cute story. So W.G. Grace is the, the very famous uh, cricketer of the 19th century, English cricketer who became a big star in Australia and around the world. And yeah, there's a story I tell in the book, which is um, is quite cute, where he's walking down the street and he sees a, a young boy, probably 12 years old, smoking a pipe, which is probably a bit young for a boy to be smoking, but you know, 19th century values. And, here as well. <laughs> but the pipe's head, the bowl of it, was W.G. Grace's iconic bearded face. And Grace looked at it and was delighted and found it very funny. And he um, he, he bought it off the kid. He, he gave him some money and said, uh, you know, I'd like to own this. And so he he bought this sort of image of his own face so that he could show friends, I guess. And, and that is a thing that celebrities had to con- contend with for a lot of history. For the 18th century, it started obviously with caricatures and, and um, yeah, they would appear on plates and fans and pipes and on the doors of pubs. Um, but in the late 19th century, there's a real radical change where 
celebrities finally cotton on to the promotional possibility of their brand and they start selling their image. So for much of the 18th century and early 19th century, celebrities were, they had no control. People would steal their images. They would steal their brand to sell their stuff. And so actors would find their faces on you know, adverts for sort of snuff, tobacco, whatever. And they'd never agreed to sign up to this. They, you know, but they just had been appropriated. But in the 1870s and 80s, some celebs start to go, oh, hang on a minute, I, I, I can be making money myself. So uh, Mark Twain had his own brand of cigars, I think, and maybe whiskey, if I remember rightly. Um, several actresses started to advertise soap. Um, quite a lot of big stars started to sort of pose for photographs and sell them specifically. So you could buy official kind of calendars and books. Um, there suddenly became this moment where celebrities realized they were a kind of gold mine. They'd been walking around charging tickets to their shows or selling copies of their books. And that was their primary income. But they suddenly realized there was a secondary income as well of all the kind of paraphernalia and tat when people wanted to own their image. What was the uh, was when you were researching all this? Did you come across any particular sort of tie-in merchandise that uh, <laughs> that appealed to you that you felt like picking up yourself, or did it all kind of blend into <laughs> an array of pipes and soap packets and things? Uh, I think the one that surprised me, and I'm, I don't think I'd ever want this myself personally, but um, the famous baseball star in America, Babe Ruth, had Babe Ruth underpants. Uh, that were like just, I think they were marketed to young boys, but um, I'm not quite sure that's really <laughs> the kind of thing we probably would sell these days. Oh. Um, but um, but yeah, it you know there is a there's a sort of wide gamut of stuff that you could purchase, you could buy, and um, usually it was yeah, it was it was you know merchandise stuff. But yeah, from time to time it'd be kind of weird, weird stuff. You'd be like, really that. Um, but obviously the playing cards, the cigarette packets, all that stuff was very collectible. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's basically the equivalent of a Panini sticker album. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Same. I think people have clearly always wanted to have miniature versions of their, the object of their affections. That's and, right. And it's, and it's also about that kind of the impulse to collect yeah. and to own and to discuss and debate, you know, uh, you know, I remember as a, as a boy being a, exactly that, the football stickers you know, for the world cups, so that was always my, sort of way of wasting my pocket money um but in the 19th century we have this thing called um cartomania mm. which is this uh obsession it's slightly gendered it was it was thought to be more of a, a female hobby although not exclusively for women and it was the collection of what's called carte de visite which was small cardboard photographs of celebrities and there was just an absolute deluge of them millions and millions were sold and they were Photographs of celebs, actors, criminals, bishops, you know, the royal family, quite a weird array of people. But you would collect them in your little, in your carte de visite book and you would share them with, you know, your family. But you'd invite people around to stare at them and you'd comment on them. And you, and it was a way of bonding. It was a way of bringing people together. It was sort of a Facebook of the 19th century. It was a, a kind of social media where the thing that bound people together in conversation was what this celebrity looked like and you know whether it's Charles Dickens or Oscar Wilde it was a thing that allowed people to to talk to each other and that's still what celebrity does now for us and actually that's one you know you you write about obviously the the experiences of the celebrity and the sort of construction of their celebrity but also the the fandoms that build up 
around them, you know, right back to Byromania and and <laughs> or um, like what is what sort of threads run through the experience of of fan community? I mean, community. I don't know if that's quite the right word when we're going back to the 18th century, but I guess in a way, it's you know, I'm sure that there were. Um, fans of various actors or or uh artists you know sharing their thoughts on them at the time like is there a sort of consistent thread of fandom running through those three set almost three centuries there is and the the word fandom is a bit more modern it's a 19th century word and it comes again from baseball the fanatics um so it's, it was baseball fans were the first fans but it's um they're there really is a sense of fandom already in the 1720s. You know, my, I, my book sort of starts really 1709 is sort of my earliest celebrity. But when we get to the 1720s, we get this really famous battle between two rival actresses in London. And they're both vying for the same part in a very famous opera. And the part is called Polly. And the actress who has the role has it taken from her by the theatre manager and given to the other rival actress. And this causes a, a fantastic backlash amongst the, the original actress's fans because they feel uh, offended on behalf of their favourite. And of course, the, the fans of the new actress are thrilled and delighted and they sort of take this as evidence that their their star is is sort of preference. And, and I can't remember which one is which, which is why I'm not naming the actresses because it's been a little while. But um, I think Anne Bracegirdle might be one of them. But... Um, and it was probably there wasn't it? That's I think so, yeah. And it, I mean, this is in the 1720s, and this is called the Poly Wars. And it's this idea that fans are very quickly not just supporting people they admire. They're not just sort of saying, oh, well, I like this person and I want them to be treated well. But they're identifying with that person, which means that, you know, uh, an insult to their favourite actress is an insult to their identity as a group, as an individual. And so... We see this now on Twitter. We see it with um, BTS fans on Twitter. They yeah. they get very upset when journalists don't quite understand the significance of BTS. You know, BTS being a, a Korean pop group who, you know, are hugely famous around the world. And when they do stuff, it has huge repercussions around the world. This matters. And every now and then some journalist accidentally kind of goes, well, who's this? Yeah. And their fans go, how dare you? They are the most important thing in my life. And... Yeah. That is a really powerful thing, but we find it in the 18th century. We find it in the 19th century. We find it with Listomania. Yeah. That's Franz Liszt, who was a sort of, you know, a genius classical pianist and composer, but also a sex symbol. Women fought in, you know, literally fought on the floor and in the streets for his discarded cigarette butts and for his handkerchiefs. Um, they queued outside the door to have sex with him. Um, you know, they, they came to blows over who would touch the thing that he had touched. Yeah. And this is 200 years ago. And you get it with Sinatra in 1941, yeah. I think it is, where you had uh, 10,000 screaming young women um, smashing up a theatre because they couldn't get in to see him. Yeah. Uh, you had it with um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century novelist and philosopher, whose stardom was so intense that people wrote to him as if they were his friends. They, they thought he was their friend. And they would write to him and call him our Jean-Jacques. And Lord Byron, funny enough, then had his own legion of fans called the Byromaniacs, which I love. Um, but Byron himself was a Jean-Jacques Rousseau fan. And he travelled through Europe visiting all of Rousseau's famous sort of locations, the places he'd written about, the places he'd lived. He went on a pilgrimage 
of Rousseau's sort of famous places because he was a fan. Yeah. And then he himself became a celebrity with his own fans. So it became this self-perpetuating thing. And you talk about the parasocial, you know, the uh, yeah. phenomenon where people do sort of feel that they, that somebody is their friend or, you know, even when they know, they, they do know they're not, they <laughs> like they know they're not, but they feel like they are. Yeah. yeah. It does seem to have been a, a really consistent element of uh, of celebrity and, and do you think that is because actually going back to the sort of the origins of celebrity you do date it as you say in, from sort of starting in the early 18th century mm-hmm. um what do you think are the sort of when you talk about this in the book but what are the sort of converging elements that make it possible for for fandom fandom as a and celebrity as a concept to emerge at that very specific time yeah, and that is the challenge for the historian. You sort of, you know, as a historian, you can obviously point to when, but sometimes the harder thing is the why. Like, why, why now? Why did it suddenly emerge in the early 1700s? Uh, and my best attempt, and it's an attempt that you know has been shaped by other people's scholarship. I'm not claiming huge originality here. I'm I'm putting together various arguments that other people have made and, and adding my own little bits and pieces. But the argument would be that in the early 1700s, you get several really important things coalescing at once. And not to bore you, I will rattle through them quickly, I promise. Um, they are uh, the lapsing of the Licensing Act in England, which had been very stringent um, control over the press. Uh, that was allowed to lapse. Um, you get very boring kings coming to power. So in England, you get George I, who's just a bit dull and speaks German. In France, Louis XV, who's not a patch on Louis XIV. Um, and you also get the arrival in 1702 in England uh, and a little bit later on elsewhere of daily newspapers. And when you've got daily papers, well, you need daily gossip. You need new things to be saying every day. Otherwise, you're just sort of going, oh, and we've already covered that. So when you need to fill your papers, you need new stories. And new stories means you need to, to widen the range of, of source material. And one of the things that's a sort of knock-on effect of having daily newspapers and of having um sort of slightly boring kings and and queens is that we see a movement away from the royal courts as the places of culture you know typically in the 17th century um the high status playwrights musicians actors and so forth painters had gone to the kings and queens to be their patrons that's where you'd go for a big commission you know shakespeare had the king's men um and in france it's moliere going to louis the 14th and you gradually see those artists and patrons sort of drift away, kind of go, it's a bit dull, actually. Um, Queen Anne isn't really that interesting and George I isn't really that bothered. And and they move instead to a new audience. And that audience is a rising middle class. The 18th century gives us the rising middle classes. We're seeing a rise in literacy rates. We're seeing the birth of daily newspapers. We're seeing print culture coming in in ever more increasing ways. We're seeing the rise of great artists who are painting ordinary people for ordinary people so it becomes what um what the german philosopher jürgen habermas called the public sphere basically people become aware of themselves as a public and they think i want to join in i want to i want to chat i want to gossip i want to be part of this conversation you know what it is to be english or british or irish or scottish or whatever the identity was i want to join in with that sort of stuff and celebrity gives people that ammunition for conversation. And do you think that sort of parasocial element then has been kind of consistent since the emergence of the first 
big 18th century celebrities like or is that more was that a um a sort of side effect of maybe i don't know rising literacy rates over the 19th century or has it always been there is is what makes a celebrity partly that feeling you you know in your in your definition that you have a personal tie to them Mm -hmm. i think i think it's there from the beginning i think it undoubtedly strengthens with the power of technology bringing the celebrity's face into our living room and into our cinemas you know i think i think hollywood and the invention of the close-up has an enormous Mm. impact because we get to stare at the beauty of these these famous actors and stars and we fall in love with them on the screen but as i said you know jean-jacques rousseau had these obsessive fans in france and in england who wrote him letters saying i i feel like you're my friend I feel like I want to tell you things. I feel like this is what's going on in my life. Dear Jean-Jacques, my son has had a daughter. I am a grandfather. I'm very proud and honoured and I wanted to tell you this. And that's happening in the 1770s, in the yeah. 1760s. And actually, Rousseau has a, a, a mental health crisis. He, has a, he descends into strange paranoia and becomes increasingly detached from the world because he's obsessed with people trying to destroy him because he this sort of glare of publicity affects him he does not he doesn't really know how to deal with it and it it sends him into a quite a spiral and by the time you get to the 19th century you certainly have people really identifying you know with charles dickens with um many of the stars of the kind of stage um certainly by the late 19th century we've got the kind of great actors on broadway and vaudeville in new york uh and we have people like vesta tilly who was a uh, a working class English girl who became this sort of doyen of the kind of respectable upper middle classes, really. She ended up marrying a Tory MP and becoming, you know, sort of uh, aristocracy, really. But she was a performer who um, performed in drag as a man and she was brilliant at it and she sang songs. She was a huge star in England and Ireland, Scotland and Wales and in America. And she had several stalkers who followed her some of them were generous kind nice stalkers who just desperately wanted to be around her they just wanted to see her every day they just wanted to sort of walk into her dressing room and say hello and then she had a couple who unfortunately weren't very well and one of whom was obsessed with the idea that he was married to her and you know kept demanding that people acknowledge that they were married and of course they weren't married uh and yeah there were various 19th century stars who had stalkers um charles dickens as well and um there is a actress in i think the 1816 maybe an english actress who um whose fan uh got very confused he was very unwell and became obsessed with the idea that he the only way she would marry him is if he jeweled her you know physically embarked in a duel and so he stood up in the theater while she was on the stage and shot at her with a pistol and thankfully missed and was wrestled to the ground and arrested and you know and tried but he had written her letters saying you know i i want to be your husband do do me the honor and she'd not written back and so he decided right i need to duel her for, for the honor of her hand in marriage and he'd shot at her and this sort of parasocial intimacy had gone two stages beyond that it had ended up in something a lot more dark and dangerous which is a very rare thing but that's the kind of the obsessive fandom that gets all the column head you know inches and the, the headlines 
because every now and you know once or twice a year we get really scary stories of people being arrested with you know a car full of knives or guns off to go and try and shoot taylor swift but um it is happening in the 18th and 19th century too and actually that's one thing that the book explores as well just the experience of celebrity from the celebrities point you know point of view and how yeah history have experienced it i mean is there a consistency there do you think over the years you know that the both the pleasures and the the pressures of fame obviously especially in recent times that's changed but is there is there still a you know a, a thread running through what it's like to be a celebrity i think so um I think it's got a lot more intense mm. um i think you know if you look at 18th century celebrities they had people I mean, famous actresses like Sarah Siddons had people barge into their dressing room while they were naked, getting dressed. And the people would barge in and just say, I want to see what you look like. You know, no apology, very matter of fact. Um, and it was just a sort of like, you know, I I feel entitled to see what you look like up close. And it happens that you've, you've taken your dress off. So I get to see a lot more than I expected, uh, which is obviously, you know, very invasive and very upsetting. Um, so that was already happening in the 18th century. But I think by the time you scroll forward to the 1920s and 30s and you get film stars, they are living under a whole more, you know, much more intense form of, of pressure. And there are very famous movie stars who just couldn't go on honeymoon. Um, I think Douglas Fairbanks tried to go on honeymoon in London and was just everywhere he went, 10,000 people follow him and his wife and he couldn't, he couldn't go anywhere. Um, Shirley Temple, who became famous in the 1930s as this adorable child star. Um, she, her dad hired a bodyguard who carried a gun. She had to move into a mansion with, you know, um, electric fences. Um, she was nearly crushed to death by her own fans. Uh, and at one point, another mentally unwell person stood up and tried to shoot her um, because this person thought that Shirley Temple had been born on the day that her daughter had died. Oh. She thought that Shirley Temple had absorbed her daughter's soul and therefore needed to, to, to die. And this had been based on a lie put out by the movie studio. They had lied about Shirley Temple's age to make her seem younger than she was, even though she was only six, you know, when they first oh. made her famous. They lied and said she was four. And that meant that this poor woman, who clearly was in huge grief, thought that Shirley Temple had been born on a different day than she was. And it very nearly killed her. So your point about the thread is is an interesting one because I think there is a thread going all the way back, but I think new technologies accelerate celebrity, make it much more intense, much more, it burns with a much more intense glare. And generally what goes wrong for celebs in the 18th century is mostly they just sort of wither away and die in poverty. Um, there aren't so many who are destroyed by their reputation. Mostly they're beautiful people who sort of no longer are beautiful and people forget about them. Whereas in the 19th and 20th century, we start to see more tragic celebrity. And certainly in the 20th century, you get people who, who are, you know, lose their lives to suicide and depression and alcohol and drugs and, and all that stuff. And that's where it gets into the story we know now, of course. You do have, you know, there's there's so many stories in the book, but one person who keeps popping up all the way through as he seemed to pop up in various guises throughout his life is a certain actor um, <laughs> called Edmund Keane. Um, yeah. He appealed to you so much. Oh, I love him. I love him. Anna, but like, I, I love him in the sort of problematic, toxic way that, you <laughs> like, you know, he's a monster. He's an absolute monster. and. He's just the worst. 
Um, and yes, I start the book with him and I keep returning to him. He, he became an overnight sensation, literally overnight sensation in 1814. He went from being a shambling, incoherent drunk who, you know, at one point had made his pregnant wife walk 180 miles from Birmingham to Swansea for a part in a play because they couldn't afford anything else because he'd spend it all on alcohol. He goes from that to the most famous person in Britain in the space of a week. And it's a sort of astonishing story. And obviously I had to put it at the, the front of the book because it's that sort of level of story of like, okay, so these overnight successes usually are, are myths. Most people take years to become famous, but he genuinely does go from nothing to superstar. And he's so interesting because he tours America twice. The second time he's out there, the Americans or well, people in Boston try and murder him <laughs> because because he'd been involved he'd been involved in a sex scandal back in london and his his sex letters basically his sort of sex modern sex i suppose had been leaked to the press and been published and uh, he was scandalized so he ran away to america to escape it and the bostonians tried to kill him um someone should make a movie well basically what i'm saying is someone should make a movie of this guy Uh, i'm i'm desperately desperately want that to happen but he's so interesting because he um he ticks so many of the boxes, really. You know, he was this incredibly toxic provocateur, but a genius. He was working class, and yet he had something special about him. He sort of lived amongst the kind of aristocracy. He was friends with Lord Byron and so forth. But at the same time, he he preferred the, the company of working class people. And he was destroyed by his talent, and yet still is hailed as the greatest Shakespearean actor of all time, probably. And so... He's this fascinating figure who psychologically I'm intrigued by because he's so angry and he's, he's got so much rage. Um, but also as a historian of celebrity, he's this amazing role model, I suppose, of, of what is possible in this era. And the fact that he's one of the first ever celebs to tour America is also so interesting because America now is the home of celebrity. And of course, yeah. it's, it's where all the money is. But in 1814 or even 1825 when he toured there, America was a backwater. And, you know, you made a lot more money touring Dublin or um, Glasgow or Bath um, than you did going to New York. So, and and it took eight weeks to get there and eight weeks to get back. So he's a very rare pioneer in that as well. So yeah, I keep coming back to him, but he's awful. (laughs) (laughs) But he is awfully entertaining as well. Yeah, he he is. Every time he pops up, it's like, what's he up to now? (laughs) Uh, but you also, I mean, he, you know, he he craved public success and fame. Mm. Um, but you do write in the book about people who were sort of success was kind of thrust upon them. I mean, uh, Sarah yeah. Bartman, the uh, the South African woman who was displayed mm. as like a as a as a as an oddity almost in yeah. uh, in in Europe is is an example. I mean, fame can, as you show, be very exploitative. And sort of, you know, that that industry that you talk about that you mentioned earlier um, can kind of chew people up. I mean, how important was you to show that sometimes we sort of think of celebrities as being people who have craved fame and success, but that there are plenty of people who have it kind of thrust upon them and yeah. don't necessarily have total, you know, control. And even if they're not in as, as a situation like Sarah Bartman's, they don't always have control over their their fame. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting thing actually. I I remember se- sending out a tweet a couple of years ago, uh, saying that Sarah Bartman, who was known as the Venus Hottentot, uh, or the Hottentot Venus, she um, I said that she was a celebrity, and someone replied and said she wasn't a celebrity; she was exploited. And I said both, you know, celebrity in our language, we tend to think of it as a sort of a 
a glamorous thing, like innately glamorous, as if it's, you know, you become a celebrity, you therefore get handed limousines and money and helicopters. And that can happen. But celebrities can also be hated and they can be vilified and they can also be constructed against their will. And sometimes that's heroic and you can be made a celebrity as a hero. So someone like Mary Seacole or Florence Nightingale, they're transformed into national figures and people elevate them and say, you're almost like a saint. And then you have, and you have celebrities who desire fame. So people like Oscar Wilde, people like Sarah Bernhardt, people who chased it. And, you know, um, Casanova in the 18th century was desperate to be famous and he didn't have any talent. So he just tried all sorts of different things. (laughs) Um, But then you have people who were made famous, made famous against their will. And it destroys them sometimes, you know, so in the book I talk about, you know, the book is meant to be funny, mostly, you know, it's it's meant to be cheerful. Um, But there is one chapter which is pretty sad. And yeah, I I look at people like um, Brenda Fraser, who was um, a very beautiful, young, very wealthy heiress in the 1930s, who was just made famous against her will by the the gossip columnist in New York. And it destroyed her, just turned her into an absolute um, addict and recluse and incredibly sad story. And um, there are quite a few stories a bit like that, really, of people who were just sort of thrust into the limelight because people decided they would be interesting. Mm. And they weren't ready for it. They weren't psychologically ready. They didn't want it. They didn't know how to handle it. And it ruined them. And so celebrity is an industry. It's a, it's, it's a capitalistic enterprise. And it is not innately glamorous. It can be negative. It can be positive. Most of the time, it's both. Most of the time, it's, it comes with downsides and upsides. You know, they hand you a lot of money, but you surrender your freedom and your privacy. Um, and you get stalkers and, and super fans. You know, the super fans are lovely. The stalkers are terrifying. You know, there's that kind of, there's a flip side to it. But it's, it's a very complex cultural phenomenon. And what I try to do in the book is explain that being a celebrity is often something that people end up in without understanding what it means and then they regret it and they find it very invasive and they desperately try to draw draw back from it so i sort of um, i guess i make the case somewhat quietly but that we need to be kinder to celebs we need to be you know i'm not saying we should like you know kowtow to them but like we just need to be more cautious i think because there are certainly people out there who are who don't have great mental health and who are struggling and if they're in the limelight and if we're all talking about them sometimes that's too much pressure And I think that's one of the great things that the book does is that it really humanizes the celebrities, you know, going right back to Edmund Keane. um, Mm. And, you know, it's it's clear that everybody but celebrities and the public are kind of in this relationship that um, Mm. that can benefit from people kind of looking out for each other and not completely dehumanizing somebody just because they are well known. but we are coming up to question time. So I'm going Lovely. to see what <laughs> questions people have. And uh, I haven't even got onto your excellent podcast, uh, You're Dead to Me, but I strongly recommend people listen to it because it is great. Thank you. Um, so Emer says, uh, Emily Ratajkowski, or Ratajkowski recently wrote in The New Yorker, I think, I think it could have been Vulture magazine, but that she paid a huge sum of money for a painting of a picture from her own Instagram by Richard mm-hmm. Prince. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's an example of how celebrity culture and capitalism interact with a, sp- a specific focus on the female body? That's a brilliant question. Um, yes, it's a, it's a very powerful piece if you haven't read it. It's quite an upsetting piece because there's also a section in there about uh, an exploitative sort of sexual advance by a photographer that I think you know we, we would call 
rather tawdry, potentially worse. Um, but reading it, it reminded me of so many stories from before, earlier. And I do write in the book of you know a couple of celebrities from 100 years ago who lost their own creative control of their own image. It was taken from them by photographers uh, or by lawyers, uh, Oscar Wilde being one of them. Uh, when he went to America, he um, he posed for Napoleon Cerrone, who is the great portrait photographer of the age. Uh, but Cerrone then went to the Supreme Court and was given the copyright of Oscar Wilde's image. So Oscar Wilde lost control of his own self. And yeah. um, and there are several actresses um, from sort of 1910s, uh, 1920s, who were... Uh, they had their image appropriated and stolen from them by men who used them in advertising commercials or, you know, um, basically Photoshop their face onto photos of young women who weren't wearing many clothes. Yeah. And, you know, this idea that actually celebrities, when they went to the, you know, they went in search of protection from the law and the law went, sorry, we're not interested. You're, you know, as soon as you're famous, you're in the public eye, people can do what they like. And it's this sort of really interesting moment where, celebrities discovered their privacy mattered less than anyone else's and their image could be acquired. And so um, Emily Ratajkowski, you know, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Sorry if it isn't, um, you know, has written this very personal essay about what it is to be a model uh, and to have your image, you know, taken and published in a book by someone else who you no longer you know, want to work with because they were very uh, exploitative. Uh, and the fact that she had to buy it back but even then it's still out there and it's someone else's property and she's lost control. That is a problem that that has extended back at least a hundred years. You know, it goes back to the birth of photography really. So it's a brilliant question. And thank you. Cause that, you know, it's such a, it's one of those things where you suddenly do realize that these, these things sort of matter and understanding the history of them can perhaps under, help us understand where we're going now. And um, Audrey McCready asks, because the the title does say from the Bronze Age to the Silver Screen, right. about the Bronze Age, in brackets, I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> point. Um, the reason I've said from Bronze Age to Silver Screen is not just simply it's a nice title. Um, it's because actually I, I had to separate celebrity from fame. And fame is an ancient idea. It's an ancient idea that we get from the, the Greeks and Romans comes from the latin word pharma meaning to be spoken of or to be on to be gossiped about and pharma was an ancient roman goddess who unlike most roman goddesses who are sort of beautiful you know venusian type beauties with wings uh pharma is a monster pharma is basically godzilla covered in eyes and tongues and ears and she gets bigger and bigger the more people gossip about you and she stalks the landscape and finds you she hunts you down and this is from the poet virgil and describes the idea that fame could be a reputation-destroying monster rather than a reputation-building one as well. So I had to sort of separate in the book. Chapter three is where I tackle this extremely difficult section and kind of go, I'm so sorry, it's very, very hard and very complicated. Um, but it's where I try to figure out the difference between fame. It's a Greek idea, a Roman idea, and celebrity. And of course, what I came up with is that celebrity is where the money gets attached. And the Romans and Greeks didn't have that commercial economy. But the Romans and Greeks did have reputations and they had negative celebrity. They had negative fame, really, negative pharma. And their, the Greek word was kleos, meaning glory. But weirdly, they could also have, you could have negative kleos. So Herostratus is the most famous example from the ancient world. He was a um, a criminal. He burned down the um, the sacred temple of Ephesus, one of the wonders of the world, 
And he burned it down because he wanted to be famous. He had no skills and he thought, all right, I'll just destroy something famous. Um, and people were so horrified. They said, right, your punishment is that you will be scrubbed from history. No one will ever know your name because what you desire most is for people to know your name. But people were so horrified by what he'd done, they couldn't help themselves. So we know his name, 2,500 years later on. And we still have a thing now called Hero Strata Syndrome, which tragically enough is that horrible psychological thrill that murderers and terrorists get when they see their name on the news. And so when you get mass shooters going and doing horrific things and terrifying, you know, schools, the thing that gives them that impulse to do them is Herostratus syndrome, named after, named after this ancient Greek guy who wanted to destroy in order to be famous. So it's this idea that you can track back to the Bronze Age, hence why the book has that subtitle. But celebrity is different. Celebrity is where money gets attached, and that's in the 1700s. And Laura Darby asks, uh, just wondering if Greg came across any celebrity in the course of his research that he was fascinated by, but couldn't include in the book for reasons of editing, etc. Who got left on the cutting room floor? Uh, About 100 celebrities. So there are 125 in the book, but about 225 were in my, I've got 1.4 million words of notes. So I I lost 100 (laughs) celebrities. My favourite one probably was Balto. Balto was a husky. And in the 1920s, he was part of a uh, rescue team to save a town in Alaska, a town called Nome. They had a terrible disease that had broken out. They'd run out of medicine. It was freezing cold. No way to get there by ship or plane or car. The only way to get the medicine was with a, a, um, a relay team of, of huskies and, and mushers. And Balto was the, the final dog that raced into the town and delivered the medicine just in time and became a celebrity dog and became a movie star and was stuffed and put in a museum and there's a statue of him. Um, And I wrote that story and went, oh, this is a great story. Uh, But it just didn't quite fit. It just didn't quite belong in the book. And I already had a celebrity animal in Clara the Rhino, who was a two-ton rhino who toured Europe in the 1750s. So so Balto, sadly, uh, is on the cutting room floor. But it's a good story. It's worth Googling. Alas, poor Balto. You could I'm not have to do a sequel of animal-only celebs. Yeah, there are quite a few, actually. There are, there are a surprising number of uh, celebrity elephants, like Dumbo, um, or Jumbo, rather. Dumbo's the Disney film. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, there were, there were a few, actually. And there's, there's been some really good work by historians on um, famous animals from history. So uh, maybe one day. But um, yeah, Balto is maybe for book two. We'll see. <laughs> Um, Serb K. Sidhu asks, fab talk, really enjoyed it. Uh, where you. does the word celebrity derive from? It derives from the Latin, meaning to, meaning to be honoured or frequented. Um, weirdly, it only really applies to people in about 1849. So um, about 170 years ago, I guess, um, during the Victorian era, when we get the birth of photography, people start to be called celebrities. Prior to that, celebrity was something you could have, but you could not be. So it was more like the word fame. You know, you can have fame, but you can't be fame. And Dr. Johnson, uh, who came up with a famous dictionary, uh, he, in the 1760s, I think maybe, uh, said, you know, I, um, I was not yet rewarded in relation to my celebrity. So he, he knew celebrity was something that you could sort of possess, but he wasn't yet himself a celebrity. But weirdly, before that, the word celebrity, in ancient Latin, it meant frequented, but in, in the 1500s and 1600s, it meant a, um, a major occasion, like a coronation or a parade or a, 
you know, hugely important, solemn um, baptism would be a, a celebrity. So it's a word that's gone through a few evolutionary changes, as many of the words do in, in the book, actually. And then we have words like star, which is about 200 years old. Um, so, yeah, celebrity is a strange one, uh, which means that actually, technically speaking, even though I say celebrity you know, existed in 1709, people weren't called celebrities until 1849, which is a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> Retrospectively dubbed them celebrities. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. Um, Niall asks, who is a celebrity that we should know more about who's unknown now? That's a good question. I think um, there are loads of people in the book who you probably won't have known much about. And, you know, I'm not going to editorialize and tell you, oh, you should know about this person because, because everyone will have a different response to it. But I think what's interesting is that so many of the stars of the past had really important cultural value at the time, but they didn't then linger beyond it. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting. It, it reminds you that celebrity is a sort of cultural construct that we, we create celebs because we need them, because we want them, because we enjoy them. But actually the kind of celebrities we create are very specific to the kind of culture we live in. And so when you look in the 18th and 19th century, there are people who sort of were essential at the time and then they were just forgotten. And so perhaps someone like Master Betty, who um, he was English born, but he grew up in Ireland and he came to fame during um, Emmett's Rebellion. Um, and he was a boy actor. He was 12 years old. And he was the only actor allowed in town, which is why he became famous, because everyone else wasn't allowed to act, because there'd been a, a lockdown because of the rebellion, because, the, because you know, the Irish people were demanding independence. And um, he became this huge star in Scotland and then in England. And people smashed up the theatre to see him. They pulled guns out. People died. You know, like incredible, intense Betty mania. And um, this was all because Napoleon was threatening to invade and people were just incredibly stressed and they needed a cute kid. And he was this cute kid and everyone just lost their minds, uh, obsessed with this 12-year-old. And about three years later, he was done. That's it. No one cared anymore. He tried having a comeback at 21 or something like that. No one cared. What mattered was that in that exact moment, what the culture had needed was a boy who was cute and adorable and unthreatening. And we get that again with Shirley Temple in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Um, America is in absolute crisis. And along comes this gorgeous four-year-old little, you know, talented girl with incredible IQ and curly hair who tap dances and does jazz hands. And everyone was like, yeah, that's what we need. And she became the number one box office star in America because, and around the world um, because people needed hope and optimism. And I guess during the COVID lockdown, <laughs> maybe we will see some other child star come forward and and be our our savior so um i haven't quite answered the question there but i think what i'm what i meant to say is that um lots of people get forgotten for a reason because really celebrity is functional yeah and their time has passed yeah exactly yeah harsh in the case for old master betty on the on the, on the scrappy before he's 21. He peaked way too soon, yeah. Uh, um, Grace asks, uh, I'm just wondering what famous figure of the past does Greg think would be most interesting to be around today in the age of social media? Uh, ah. Thank you. Can you imagine Edmund Keane on Twitter? Oh, Edmund Keane would be cancelled so quickly on Twitter. <laughs> like he's, he honestly, there would be every week you'd be like, oh, what now, Edmund? Um, reading at the wee hours. I think um, the one that comes to mind very quickly would be Anna Held, 
Mm. Anna Held was a French-Polish singer uh, in the late 19th century. She was married to Florence Ziegfeld, who created the Ziegfeld Follies in New York. She was very beautiful. She had a very tiny waist. She had very big eyes, which was her gimmick. Uh, she sang songs that were very kind of flirtatious and cute. And she was a genius manipulator of the press, always inventing new fake stories about herself, about what happened that week to her or to Florence. Um, ridiculous stories, you know, planted in the press, deliberately untrue in order to heighten her appeal. Um, Florence famously said, any day that we are not in the newspapers is a bad day. <laughs> so she was very much a sort of Kardashian of the age. And it backfired on her because she earned a lot of money. She bought some amazing, beautiful jewels. She bought a luxury train to travel around America in with a private bedroom on it. And she left her jewels in the train and it was robbed. And nobody believed her because she'd spent years planting these fake stories in the media. And the moment she became a victim of crime, everyone went, I'll oh, pull the other one. <laughs> so she became the celebrity that cried wolf. And just as when uh, Kim Kardashian was robbed at gunpoint in Paris, and people thought it was a hoax, they thought it was a publicity stunt, same thing happened to Anna Held. So I'm sure if we'd given her a Twitter account or an Instagram account, she would have absolutely had a blast on there. But oh. it probably would have caught up with her in the end. <laughs> Can you imagine the Instagram account or the eye photographs? Would have been yeah, definitely. Love <laughs> your mascara brand. Uh, now, do we have time for one more question? I know it's just coming up to eight o'clock. Um, we do have uh, uh, Tracy asks, um, do you think that the intimacy, intimacy that COVID has denied us in our personal lives will be channeled into an increased appetite for the consumption of celebrity? Oh, that's a that sounds like a dissertation title, doesn't it? That's it we need to go and write a PhD thesis. That's fantastic. Um, I think it's a, a mixture of two things. I think what's happened in COVID is that we've seen a split. We have seen quite a lot of people realised that the lives they were leading were not necessarily the lives that they wanted to lead. And they've actually discovered new joys and new simplicities. I think we've also found a lot of people kind of going, oh God, no, I really miss who I was. I really miss that culture. I really miss those distractions. I really miss that, that fun thing that celebrity gives me. And what's interesting also is that it, we've seen celebrities split down the middle too. Some celebs have seen their reputations damaged. Madonna, I think most famously with her weird uh, fried fish song in the bathroom. Um, everyone went, what the hell are you doing? Um, and Ellen DeGeneres, I think, had a, a rough time of it. And do you remember when the celebrities did the, they sang Imagine? I was and just thinking of it. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. That. Horrific. <laughs> All of them in a different key. They clearly hadn't talked to each other. Some of them didn't care. Some of them were trying too hard. It was awful. And I think that really reminded people of the sort of solipsistic, self-obsessed nature of some celebrities. Mm. And then you've got your lovely celebrities like Sam Neill, uh, oh. who's doing, he's doing poetry readings and playing jazz songs with Jeff Goldblum and doing wine reviews. And you just kind of go, ah, I wish you were my dad. Like yeah. just <laughs> nice celebrities doing nice things. And we've had celebs, you know, people like Joe Wicks doing exercise stuff for kids. And we've had athletes doing exercise classes for, for young children. And we've had people doing cookery classes. I think, you know, celebrity is a multifaceted thing and you can split it a number of ways. And so people will respond differently. For some people, they don't miss it. And some people probably are, spending more time looking at the Instagram of uh, various celebs because they're desperate for some distraction. That's what celebrity gives us. It gives us hope and distraction and sometimes things to take the piss out of. <laughs> what more can you want? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, now, it is eight o'clock. Do, do we have time for, uh, for another question or have you reached our curfew? 
It is up to you guys. If you want to do one more, I don't. I'm yeah. happy to do one more. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, Henrietta McCurvy asks, "What is the fascination? Do you think for the public's interest in relationships between celebrities or in their feuds with each other? Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, for an, for example." That's a good example. Yeah. Well, I mean, so this is a really interesting thing that we track. We can track back to the 18th century again. Um, the idea of of celebrity coupling, of celebrity um, romances. The first portmanteau that we get, you know, long before you get Benefer and uh, and Brangelina and all those sorts of um, kind of horrible portmanteaus, we got it back in um, the 18, 1896 with we had Cleopold, which is Cleo de Merode and King Leopold of Belgium. Um, they were allegedly a couple. Uh, she was a French ballerina. And so they're the earliest I've come across. And, um, and there were more in the 1920s and 30s too in Hollywood. But the idea of obsessing about celebrity feuds and celebrity relationships, I think is a just, it's about treating them as, as soap operas. It's about saying these people are fictions. They're not real. Um, so it's kind of like gossiping over the garden fence with your next door neighbor or chatting to your hairdresser about someone, you know, you know, and going, oh, I can't believe so-and-so has been cheating on their husband with this person. It's a bit of that, but it's also, I think sometimes we treat celebrities as if they are, you know, as if they've been scripted by a team of writers. And so we're kind of going, oh, I can't believe what's happening this week's episode. So I think there's a sort of a few things going on there, but the, the fascination with the private life, the sex lives, the feuds, you know, has sold newspapers for 300 years. And um, the most famous feud I can think of, apart from the, the classic one we've, we've heard in the question, was um, in the late 19th century, the very famous French actress, Sarah Bernhardt, or Sarah Bernard, if you want to use the French pronunciation. Um, she had a very, very good best friend um, who betrayed her and wrote an incredibly cruel, rude, um, Roman à clef, which means a novel with a key. So basically a, a novel where you, you know that the character is basically Sarah Bernhardt, but they've changed the name. And it was this incredibly crude, rude novel about her being a sort of sex-obsessed sort of harlot. And Sarah Bernhardt and her boyfriend turned up at her apartment and attacked her and beat her up and trashed her apartment. And it got in the newspapers and got in like people doing cartoons of it. And you just sort of go, that, I mean, that's the peak thing, isn't it? You know, that, you know, before you had Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, you had genuine best friends beating the crap out of each other with whips uh, and it getting in the newspapers. And this is 120 years ago. So, yeah, it's just something we love to talk about. Betty and Joan never, as far as anyone knows, actually, oh, you know, yeah. gave the physical blows. But who who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And, and in the book, I also talk about the two very famous gossip columnists who ruled mm. Hollywood but they were arch rivals, hated each other and desperately tried to destroy each other. Um, so not even the, sometimes it's not just the celebrities. Sometimes it's the gossip columnists who write about celebrities who get into these incredible feuds. So. Mood is or just a mood, mood around celebrities is so heightened. Everybody gets all worked <laughs> up. They get, yeah, exactly. It affects, you know, it affects the writers as well. Did you, do you find yourself feeling very defensive about, are you a fan now of Edmund Keane? Do you feel that? <laughs> yeah. I, like Rihanna's Navy or the, the Keane? I'm, I'm not sure if I'm a Keane fan. I, def, <laughs> I definitely feel like I, I keep telling people about it. I keep going, you should know about Edmund Keane. And then they say, why? And I go, he's awful. And they go, why do you like him? I'm like, I don't know. Um, I definitely feel sympathy towards quite a lot of celebrities who I didn't really understand before. And uh, yeah, it's definitely changed my outlook on modern celebrity too. And I think, I, I hope that if, if you read the book, you 
I hope that it makes you laugh and it makes you sort of learn a few things. But also, if I've done my job, you might come away at the end thinking a little bit more compassionately and a bit more thoughtfully about what it is to be made incredibly famous and then have that control taken away from you by strangers commenting on what you look like at, you know, red carpet events or whatever. Uh, well, we are now a little bit over our time. So thank you so much to uh, to Greg. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks to everybody who asked questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to get to um, to all of them, but uh, it was, um, you've asked very thought-provoking and interesting questions. Yeah, great questions. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.